Hey, hey, another edition of the Disability Law Show. Good to have you here. Skulls and Tamara Gopian is uh, hanging out with us for the hour. Going to be uh, doing all the heavy lifting as we get into some emails and other things. Anytime you can contribute to the show, we'd love to have you stopping by with that. How do you do it? Help at disabilityrights.ca. You can always reach out to Tamar and her extremely capable and uh, wonderful team to have a chat and discuss your matter in private. Uh, a lengthier conversation, of course, can be had. When we're not doing this show, one 821 5900 And you also have the option of mydisabilityquestions.com. That is a website you go to, and you can type your questions in anonymously, and it's got a searchable database. Uh, that's how the uh, algorithm works, which means you can search for past questions similar to your own. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. Email's already piling up. Thank you so much for joining the show early on, everybody. So we'll get to it tomorrow. We always start off with a case of the day or something that's going on happening on your desk in your office uh, recently. What's going on, pal? You know, busy as usual, lots of phone calls coming through and mm-hmm. obviously ongoing work to do with clients. Uh, but you know, John, I think this week, I feel as though mental health claims for whatever reason is front and center on, on my desk. And it often is. I think that there's a lot of disability insurers who are still denying these claims sort of outright or not properly adjudicating them. And so we get a lot of calls around mental health disability claims and issues that people are having with the disability insurer. So this week I decided I wanted to highlight a call I had recently with someone this week that you know raises some of the issues that we talk about fairly consistently on the show, just generally at a high level. She unfortunately, um, gave rise to an issue uh, as a result of her daughter being diagnosed with cancer Mm. and she herself was a cancer survivor and it turns out that between herself and her husband they have the gene that makes their children predisposed to cancer and so not surprisingly very sad situation but not surprisingly one that gave rise to a mental health reaction she was diagnosed with situational Uh, anxiety and an adjustment disorder and was put off work on advice of her doctor, put through some medication and so on. And, you know, she's in the process of supporting her daughter through her treatments and what's happening with her health and these further investigations that are happening in the entire family's health, right? Herself, her husband and her two kids, not to mention the daughter. So in the context of that, she takes a disability leave. She's approved for short-term disability But then, of course, as she's trying to transition from short-term to long-term disability, she's denied. The long-term disability insurer says, you know, this is a temporary thing. You know, you could continue to work while you're receiving treatment. We're not seeing the severity of the condition. And by the by, you're supporting your family right now, including taking your daughter to treatments. And so this must mean that, you know, that everything is fine and you're not totally disabled, quote unquote, so to speak from doing her job, which was, you know, not an insignificant job in the sense, John, that she had uh, both physical requirements and emotional requirements. She she had to be on her game in order to do her job. And that really is the lens of what the insurer is supposed to be looking at, at the initial phase of your disability claim is, look, can you actually go back and do your own job, your own occupation, given the health profile and what's been described by her doctors uh, as disabling? And so, I think that this highlights a few really important concepts. Number one is this idea of transitioning from short-term to long-term, John. And it can be that you get a lot of resistance in that phase, even if it's the same insurance company who looked at and administered or adjudicated your short-term claim. 
Why is that? Because once it gets to long-term, it's actually the long-term disability insurer's money that's getting paid out. Usually the short-term, even if they're administering it, so they're looking at it, they're reviewing it, they're approving it, they're supplying a letter, the money, the actual compensation that you get, the income loss payment for, for short-term disability sometimes can come from your employer. So the insurance company is not as bothered until it gets to be, wait a minute, we got to pay for this now. And so they will resist this transition very often, more often than not. And so it can be one of the main barriers that we see for people. We're thinking, well, hang on, I, I got approved for short term tomorrow. Well, how come I'm not getting approved for long term? Well, they're not going to tell you it's because it's their money, but that really is. I mean, they're profit making machines, right? And this is how they weed out otherwise valid disability claims. So that's one element of it. And the other more significant is, well, why is it? And, and this is why she called us to talk to us. Why is it that it was good enough to be approved for short term, but now I'm not, I don't have the medical basis for the long term. Why is it that they're saying that it's not sufficiently severe? Right. She's like, I'm bursting into tears. She was even in tears, even talking to me. It was really, really a difficult um, situation for her. And I was completely sympathetic and I understood. And all I could really share with her are my insights about what I have experienced with other clients and insurance companies in these kinds of situations. And I say situation intentionally because this is the word that I think insurance companies get very hung up on, which is situational anxiety, John, not generalized anxiety. And why is that? Situational, just by virtue of the word. And I'm not a doctor here, but I can tell you if you Google situational anxiety, it's, it's a time limited specific to a certain environment. And a, this is the extent that an adjuster will analyze, right? They don't, they don't have any medical background. They have no understanding of mental health conditions or any disability conditions, frankly. But when they see the doctor writing situational, they equate that to temporary. And so that assumption was unfortunately made to base the decision for the insurance company to deny the claim for long term. So that was the one piece of advice that I gave to this uh, individual who contacted us to say, look, it's clear that it's not necessarily situational. These symptoms have certainly persisted. Your doctor has not given you the recommendation to return back to work. You remain disabled. And I think that that needs to be really hammered home to the insurance company that even if the initial application said situational doesn't necessarily mean that's the current status of things. But the insurance company is not going to write to your doctor necessarily, John, to ask for that clarification. They're just going to look at the forms and if the forms say this and they, they make the same conclusion that, you know, generally you can make if you Google it. Uh, and unfortunately, that's the extent of the sophistication that's being applied. And I really do think that it is a fundamental problem with disability insurers and adjusters who are looking at these mental health claims and only doing that, only Googling or only accessing internet resources that they have at their disposal without really thinking about how does it affect this particular individual? How does it affect the job that they're doing? What are the requirements of their job? What are they really capable of doing? And I think that really brings me to the next part. And this was the other part that I really wanted to emphasize to this individual who contacted us, which was this level of function. Adjusters are obsessed with the idea that they want to really understand what are your restrictions, limitations, what's your level of function, and does that function line up with you being able to continue working? And I think that there are a lot of assumptions made in terms of function when you're talking about mental health. 
And I think the lack of understanding becomes even more difficult uh, to contend with if you're a claimant and you're sort of butting your head against um, the disability insurer who keeps denying your claim. And I think it's because in this particular woman's situation, she was supporting her daughter. And I think that the adjuster read into that, that there was a level of function there that aligned with her being able to also function in other platforms of her life. And, I, you know, John, look, I'm a parent. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my child. And yeah. so this was the cut, right? And this was the conversation. I think the, the human aspect of the analysis, I think, is where things get lost with adjusters. And I can tell you that it's not lost when I'm involved in a disability claim. A lot of the time I will advocate on behalf of my clients by emphasizing the humanity or the 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 unfair approach, I suppose, if I'm putting it mildly, that the adjuster of the insurance company had towards someone when they were denying their claim. And I think this is a real flaw in the analysis. And this is exactly the advice I gave her yesterday, by the way. I said, look, you know, this is a problem for the adjuster. Um, but I think as a starting point, the better approach, at least at this stage, is you want to have your doctor do a deeper dive on where you're at from a health perspective right now, what the advice and recommendations are for treatment, you know, where this is headed potentially. And if the doctor doesn't know and you don't know, it's okay to say to the insurance company, we don't know yet. Prognosis is unknown. And continue to focus on your health while still supporting your family because that is absolutely something that is accepted. And just because you're supporting your family doesn't mean you're capable enough to work. So there you have it. That was the situation I wanted to highlight this morning um, in our conversation. It's a good one. And uh, the smart thing is always reaching out, right? Because this is, uh, man, it's such a it's such a confusing thing that you guys deal with every day. I just, uh, you know, sometimes it mystifies me that people actually can deal with it. But but there you go. You seem to got a pretty good, uh, pretty good handle on it. It's 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 interesting too because you often wonder if the whole thing wrapped around uh, mental illness and those claims is it ever going to just be commonplace for insurers? I mean, are they ever just going to to muck in and just start accepting it more often without so much hassle? You know what I mean? I don't know, John. I don't uh. think so. I mean, I think they've come a little bit of ways. But the the adjusters, when I see the adjudication from these adjusters. They get very fixated on the minutia, and I think that it's difficult to pin these sorts of claims down. Um, and so they use the approach they would use for, say, a broken arm, which is very clear, uh, very clear to diagnose, very clear in terms of course of treatment and recovery. And they try and apply those kinds of tools and policies and approach to disability uh, claims that are driven by mental health conditions. And I don't think you can do it that way. And so there has to be some kind of a fundamental shift. The one thing that I think is most problematic really is that they focus very much on getting a paper review. A lot of the time they'll get their own um, doctor who they have, who they pay, uh, typically a psychiatrist, to look at the papers that have been submitted on behalf of a claimant and weigh in on whether they think it's severe enough. And here's the biggest problem with that, John. They don't even talk to the claimant. They don't talk to the claimant. They don't talk to the claimant's medical team. They just look at literally what's written on the paper. And I think nothing could be further from really having a good understanding of a mental health condition if you're just looking at the paperwork. And I think that's the biggest flaw if I were to just sort of think about where are adjusters going wrong with mental health claims. That's the biggest problem. And the fixation around a psychiatrist being the leading expert 
in providing the support for a disability claim, that's also untrue because sometimes the family doctor is in a better position or a counselor or a support worker or someone else who's in this individual's um, orb that's supporting them and their testimonials and their information around the disabling nature of the health issue, just as compelling as a psychiatrist or a doctor or some other information that could be supplied to the disability insurer. I think we'll take a, a quick break and get into our emails. They're, uh, they're piling up. we got some good ones. In fact, Julie, you're on first, and we'll get to your email after that short break. In the meantime, always reaching out to tomorrow and the team. It is uh, quite simply done at one 821 5900 and that email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Stand by. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian, courtesy Samfiru Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed Law firm in the country, reaching out to Tamara and her team. We always tell you you're encouraged to do so just if it's for uh, some basic information or just to have a chat. If you don't have a, a major problem, that's okay. You can always reach out to Tamara and her team. We'll need to uh, always give you some information and educate, which is what we do with this hour of radio every week as well. How do you do that? one 821 5900 Email help at disabilityrights.ca. Just that simple. Julie, as promised up first, guys, I was uh, diagnosed with a degenerative disease about 10 years ago when I was in my early 30s. I've done every kind of treatment and taken every medication my doctors have prescribed, and I've seen so many different doctors that I've lost count. But over the last 10 years, things have just gotten much worse. I'm exhausted all the time. Many days I can't think straight. I'm a senior account executive, and my job requires me to deal with customers on a regular basis. My GP and specialist have both encouraged me to stop working for some time. And finally, about a year ago, I'd had enough and went on sick leave. I was approved for short-term disability benefits, but my claim for LTD long-term was denied. They said there hasn't been any significant change in my condition. I appealed twice. My treating doctors have been great about helping me and been practically begged my insurance company to change their minds, but both appeals were denied. I don't understand how I'm not eligible for disability benefits if my doctors are telling me I can't work. Is this worth pursuing? Asked Julie. Wow. Yes. Yes, it's worth pursuing, Julie. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm also scratching my head. I don't really understand what the issue is here. So, I've, you know, I think this touches a little bit on what I talked about at the top of our show about the transition from short term to long term, John, and you can see a little bit of resistance here and and a lot of resistance, actually, because she's saying she's appealed a couple of times. And so it it very much could be that the insurance company then is going to become the payor of the benefits. And so they're becoming essentially the gatekeepers of their own money. Right. And so it puts them in a real conflict position to sort of lose that objectivity around the fair adjudication of these types of claims. I think with Julie, you know, I've dealt with a few progressive health issue conditions and Julie seems to fit in that profile from the information she described, you know, lots of treatment efforts did what she could to continue working. I give her a lot of credit. She did that. It seems for over 10 years and then eventually got to a point where her doctors are saying, okay, enough's enough. You need to stop working and focus on your health. Absolutely fair. I think in a situation like that, though, it becomes very important for her own doctors to explain the change, to explain the progression where someone goes from a moment that they are working to the point where they are not. And so I'd want to really do look to see what her doctors have actually written down and, you know, what was submitted to the disability insurer on these various appeals. But at the end of the day, I don't think another appeal, frankly, is going to help this situation 
And so let's get into that topic. Um, you know, one of our favorites on the show about why the appeal process can be very unsuccessful for people and frankly, quite frustrating. And it's intentionally done, John. There are three levels of appeal typically that insurance companies will, will offer individuals before they write to them and say, your claim is closed, quote unquote. And so all of this is very, the words that they use really lull people into believing that they're getting a fair shake by continuing to go on this process that the insurance company has invited them to do. But really what's happening is, is that they're just trying to bide their time to run down that clock hmm. to actually assert their rights for a legal claim. And Julie has the right to do that, John, right from the first moment she was denied benefits. So imagine, I don't know how much time has passed that she's been trying to fight with the insurance company to get her claim approved, but I suspect it's been months. And I can assure you that once we start a legal claim, sometimes we get it resolved before those months are up. I mean, it, sometimes it's a matter of months and we get the thing sorted with the disability insurer. And so why is that? It's partly because when we start these legal claims, number one, they can't ignore us. There are very strict timeframes in which the insurance company has to respond. And number two, and sometimes more importantly, it's taking it out of the hands of the adjuster that's already said no to you at least twice, potentially even three times. And it puts it in the hands of a specific lawyer and a specific individual at the insurance company who's looking at this from a risk analysis perspective. What is this going to look like before the eyes of a judge? Are we really that confident in denying Julie's claim? Do we have a medical basis for having done that denial? All of these things come into play, John, and this is why the legal claims are so much more efficient and effective in terms of getting resolutions from our for our clients as opposed to our clients going through these appeals time and again. I mean, I could, I could go on and on about the appeal process, John, but I think one other point I want to make is that you're not going to see this process written down anywhere. You're not going to see it in your disability policy. You, you may not even get something written from the adjuster about how this process works. I think one insurer has a flow chart that I've seen. And even in the flow chart, it doesn't tell you who's looking at your appeal. doesn't tell you if it's different people. doesn't tell you what they're specifically looking for. Um, it's just a process I think that they've conceived of because, you know, they're highly regulated industry, the insurance industry, and they need to show that there are potentially some checks and balances, even if they're perfunctory, meaning even if they are not useful or actually meaningful in terms of reevaluating a disability claim that they've already denied. So I think when I look at Julie's profile from a health perspective, the nuances around the progression of her health issues, the various uh, medical treatment efforts that she's done while she was working, but then getting to a point where she could no longer work. I think she fits right in, and then denial after denial, she fits right into that profile of individual that we would love to help and to actually then have a meaningful conversation with the people who can make decisions around these disability claims and get an efficient resolution so that she's not frustrated, so that her doctors are not frustrated with the process, because I'm sure they are too, right, John? Like medical report after medical report or denial after denial, you don't understand why your patient is not getting approved for benefits. They get exhausted having to deal with the adjuster or the insurance company as well. So much more efficient route to try and start a legal claim and go down that process. You know, myself and my team be more than happy to do a deeper dive with Julie and actually get that going so that we can get a resolution for her sooner than later. 
Julie, appreciate that. You know the email address, obviously, because we just read it. But follow-up phone call, always a, a good plan, right? one 821 5900 I'm going to throw a big basket of a question here at you. The most common reasons insurance <laughs> companies use to cut off claims, like, is it too broad? <laughs> I like it, John. Gives me a chance to talk about a couple of different things. The most common reasons. I mean, the one that I see, I think more often than not is there is not enough medical support of the severity of your condition. Okay. That's the one that I see the most, or we do not have enough support that you are totally disabled, say for your own occupation or any occupation. And so the sufficiency of medical information is one that's easy. I hate to say it, but it's easy for the adjusters to use, John, because, you know, it's so um, out there. What do you mean you don't have enough medical support? What more do you need than a doctor saying that you can't work, right? And so I, I have this conversation with people all the time and I'm sort of chuckling, but sardonically, like it's not it's not a funny situation by any means, but one that is is the one that's the real head scratcher. And so it can be that it is like a mental health disability, for example, where you're not going to get packs of medical information with scans and things like that supporting the disability claim. So that could be one example. Uh, it could be a lot of subjectively based claims. In other words, pain, fibromyalgia, chronic pain, chronic fatigue. I could go on and on with the types of claims that we deal with, John. But in situations like that, it's too easy for the adjuster to just say, look, we just don't have the medical support to su- sufficiently say that you are totally disabled from your own occupation. So that's a really big one. And then you've got sometimes some technical reasons that insurance companies use to deny claims. And, and so I'm going to use it as a big basket to talk about a couple of different technical reasons. The one that insurers like to use the most, I find, is late notice or proof. So there are timeframes in these policies, specific timeframes in which you need to apply for short-term or long-term disability. And if you're like a day late and the insurance company sees that you're a day late and there's no reasonable explanation for that lateness, they're going to, they're going to be all over that and say, okay, look, it's late. And, you know, it compromised our ability to, you know, review your claim. And so therefore we're going to deny your claim on the basis that it was 10 days late. This one bothers me a lot because a matter of days is really not going to make a huge difference to an adjuster or an insurance company. It would be different if we're talking months. And I can tell you it is months, sometimes even years, that courts have said just because it was a year or more late doesn't mean that it invalidated the disability claim. The insurance company should have adjudicated and evaluated so when I see denials on the basis of 10 days, when there is a, and usually there's a pretty good reason for it too, John, then I don't see that as a proper technical basis for a denial, but certainly one that insurance companies like to use. And similarly, the other one we talk a little bit about is the pre-existing condition clause. You knew I was going there. And that one is another technical one that says, if your disability arose in the first year that you were covered under our plan, And it happens to relate to a health issue that you had um, just before you were covered or within that first few months of coverage, then we're going to say it's a pre-existing condition and we're going to deny your claim on that basis. This is one that was conceived of by insurance companies specifically to address insurance shopping. So think of a situation where an individual might be given um, some kind of a diagnosis that's fairly prolonged, perhaps it's terminal, terminal. 
and they search for a job that has a good benefits package in order to access the insurance plan for that benefits package. And so they do that. And the insurers have thought, well, look, this is somewhat fraudulent, or we're getting people who were not able to vet in terms of their health and the quality of their health. And then they're on claim with us for a long time, and we're paying all sorts of money out. And they didn't want that. So of course, they conceived of this pre-existing condition clause as a means to curb that kind of conduct, that kind of effort. But John, again, this is so cynical. This doesn't happen a lot. I actually don't know of anyone who's ever done this before. And yet this pre-existing condition clause still remains in every policy. And how it's being used now as a, is as a sword by most disability insurers as opposed to a shield. They are using it as a means to deny otherwise valid disability claims. And they don't always get it right. So I'm kind of going on and on here about pre-existing condition clause. But I think that if you are denied on that basis, it does warrant a very careful review of both the policy language and what medical information was submitted to the insurance company to support your disability claim. So generally speaking, insufficient medical being one common reason and another being a bunch of these technical reasons for decline. I mean, look, I think maybe a third one would be you know, we don't think you meet the test of total disability, but I generally find, John, that that's closely tied to what information the insurance company actually has for the disability claim. So it's tied to the idea of making sure that you've provided as much medical information to support your claim as you can. Because, you know, people will apply for disability benefits and they just submit the one or two forms that they're required to submit without really thinking through, are the forms actually complete? And do they actually address every symptom that I have, every health issue that I have? Are they comprehensive enough? And I, you know, I don't blame people for submitting it in that way because that's what they're told to do. Yep, just complete the forms. We'll take a look at it. But if in fact the forms don't give the full picture, that really is up to you to make sure that your doctor or your health practitioners are providing additional records, clinical notes, maybe a report to really bolster that disability claim when you're submitting it to the insurance company. And with that, guys, one short break. Back into more email. Uh, Kasim will be uh, well, up next when we uh, when we return. In the meantime, yeah, you can always reach out. Maybe your email will uh, appear on a future show, and we can certainly uh, certainly try for that for sure. How do you do it? Help at disabilityrights.ca and one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Not to call now, but to call after the show and reach out to Tamar and her team. We continue more of the Disability Law Show just ahead. Hang on. All right. Welcome back to Disability Law Show. So good to have you stopping by this hour. And if you want to partake, you can do that anytime through email. That's what we encourage you to do to get your emails read on air. Or otherwise, that's fine. Help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number to reach Tamar and her team at the firm. Always ready for a chat. They are 1-855-821-5900 is how you do that. Kasim is up next. Says, hey, Tamar, uh, my wife listened to your show. There you go. And said I should ask you for some advice. I'm 59 and worked in finance for one of the school boards for many years. I was involved in a bad motorcycling accident some years ago and still have chronic pain in my neck and back. I managed to keep working but had to stop last year when I started getting chronic sinus infections. My nose runs all the time and I'm congested. Sometimes I have coughing fits that prevent me from talking. 
my doctors and the specialists still don't know what's wrong, but think I may be, uh, it may be migraines from the spinal injuries. I've been trying to get long-term disability insurance for a year now and keep getting declined. They said that the chronic sinus infections and chronic back pain is not severe enough to prevent me from working at my sedentary job. Can you please explain what the insurance company is doing with my claim? Wow. Oh, awesome. I appreciate you listening to the show, or at least your wife's listening to the show. Uh, I'm glad that it's informative for people. And uh, what is the insurance company doing with your claim? Well, listen, they're trying to prevent you from getting on claim because it certainly sounds like you've got a profile where you worked as long as you could. And then it got to a point where your doctor said, "Uh, uh-uh, no more. And depending on how old he is, John, it could be that he's on claim for some time. And so if the disability insurer can deny out of the gates and, you know, hope that they don't assert their rights or perhaps that he chooses to work somewhere else or go back to work in some partial capacity, they'll bank on that. They will actually bank on the fact that people will give up. They will leave money on the table, not pursue the disability insurer, even though they have absolute right to do that in circumstances like this where you've got symptoms symptoms that perhaps cannot be attributed to a specific diagnosis, but when taken together are sufficiently disabling. So let me put it in a different way. What the courts have said, John, is that you don't actually need to put a name on it or a label on it. You don't actually need to know what is causing the issues that are putting you off work. Provided you have sufficient symptoms that are impacting you and your function and including your ability to work including perhaps other areas of his life, then that should be sufficient to meet the test of total disability under most disability policies. So look, in Kassam's situation, I would like to see what the policy says specifically. Is it an own occupation or perhaps in any occupation test? Usually it's own occupation, in which case, look, I mean, he's worked for one of the school boards for many years. He's 59 years old. Um, You know, certainly, yeah, I get it that it's a sedentary job. So a job where you'd be mostly sitting down. But I suspect that he's got frequent contact with other individuals in his office space, perhaps. Uh, I suspect that, you know, he's got to be on and alert. And when you've got, you know, nose running, coughing, back pain, this and that going on at the same time, you've got enough symptoms that would sufficiently distract you from being capable of working let alone being in pain, which also prevents you from working by the by insurance companies. So I think that they're probably resisting his claim for those reasons that they are looking for a diagnosis or put to put a label on it. Because as I said at the top of the show, these insurance adjusters are box checkers. If they can put it into a neat box and say, this is what it is, this is what the disability is, put a label on it. And we know that typically this type of disability takes two to six months to resolve okay, we can chart that correctly on our systems. And in six months, Kasim should be back at work, right? And because his profile doesn't fit into that neat box, that is why he's probably getting a lot of resistance from the insurance company. So this screams out a legal claim for a whole host of reasons. Uh, Most importantly, because given his age and profile, being 59, I think is what he said to us, there's a likelihood that he could be on claim for the next six years until he turns 65. And that certainly is not compensation that's insignificant, John. We're not talking a six-month claim. We're talking years, potentially. And I don't want to see Cossum getting continued resistance from disability insurer 
just because he and his doctors don't know exactly what's causing his health issues. The bottom line is he has sufficiently disabling symptoms. He's legit about it. Tried to work through it. Couldn't. Doctor said not to work. Okay, insurance company, it's time to pay. And if he's not able to get be successful in getting his, his disability benefits approved, I can assure you that once we are involved, myself and members of our team, that the tone and tenor of the whole discussion will be vastly different because I can then put that pressure on the insurance company that, look, you guys know the law. I know the law. I know what the cases have said about this. And this is not something you're going to succeed with if you go in front of a judge and try and make an argument that this individual is not disabled. Yeah, it's all about the symptom, right? They like to rely on that one. Oh, there's no diagnosis, especially with mental uh, mental health issues as well, right? Like you don't qualify because we haven't got a label of what's wrong with you. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think the subjective nature of these types of disability claims, in other words, the, the fact that they are reported by Qasim, they are documented to his doctors, um, those are the, the types of claims that we see the most resistance because they cannot be seen necessarily on a scan. Now, yeah. having said that, it shouldn't have to be seen on a scan, John, in order to qualify for benefits. That is not the test. In fact, some insurance companies have had their wrists slapped for because they have held out for what they call objective medical evidence to support the disability claim. That objectivity doesn't necessarily jive with an inherently subjective claim. So pain, for example, symptoms um, like mental health symptoms, absolutely. And they're so individual, these mental health claims. And so I think that, you know, this is where we see a real disconnect with what insurance companies have set up as their process to look at these types of claims and what the outcome of that process is when you have a more nuanced disability situation. So I think that when I look at Cosm's profile, it is it really does hearken that kind of an issue and an issue that I think, you know, look, I battle against every day for every client that I have. Most of them have a complexity to their disability claim, which is why they are getting denied benefits. And in my mind, that's just not the right reason for a disability insurer to deny a claim. We'll take a short break, guys. Uh, we got uh, some more to go, some more emails and questions as well. In the meantime, just uh, this hour of, of radio is one thing where you're going to learn a lot, and you might hear your email or, or, or possibly not. But you can always reach out and contact uh, tomorrow and her team after the show. That is the whole point, right? one 855 by phone. And the email address we go to every show is help at disabilityrights.ca. And then there's that website, my disabilityquestions.com. The function of that is for you to go online, whether it's your phone, your tablet, your desktop, uh, laptop, doesn't matter. And you can um, anonymously ask your questions there, type them into the uh, the window and they will be answered. Maybe there's a chance that your question has been asked in the past and you can uh, search it as well. That's the way the, uh, the database works. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. Short break, more coming up here, more emails as well right here on the Disability Law Show. Hang on. This is the Disability Law Show. You bet. Thank you so much. If your email has arrived on our doorstep, it might come uh, for the rest of the time in this show or in a few minutes, or it may be on a future show. But you can always contribute to the show anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number to reach Tamar and her team at the firm. Anytime. Ready for that chat. one 821 5900 Often get this question. In fact, maybe this question is thrown at you by the insurance company sometimes tomorrow, and that is when you're pursuing those disability benefits, should you also try to get EI or EI sick benefits, or will you be asked to for that matter? What do you think? 
Yeah, that's a really good question that comes up every so often. And in fact, I had this discussion with someone earlier this week, uh, one of my clients who said, hey, Tamar, by the way, uh, after, you know, we, the claim got denied from the insurance company and I hired you, you know, I was recommended by my doctor to actually pursue EI sickness benefits. And I said to him, great, yep, you should absolutely pursue it. It's a benefits plan that's available through the federal government. Uh, you need to have a medical certificate completed that supports the fact that you can't work as a result of your health and you qualify for 15 weeks, although I think they recently increased that to 26 weeks. Uh, it typically, John, you know, like most of these government benefits, it's not going to pay you 100% or anywhere near that, but it is certainly a financial resource that's available to most claimants if they haven't already used it up at the top of their disability claim. What I mean by that is this, some employers actually don't have a short-term disability plan. They have a sick leave plan and a sick leave plan either, you know, pays you for a little bit or it just defers you to the EI sickness benefits plan and they just assume that people are going to pursue that from the government and then they can, you know, make their claim for long-term disability benefits. But saying all of that, I don't want people to think that I'm saying you should get regular EI. And so regular EI is entirely a different thing. Yes, it's also the same government entity that pays it. But the basis for that usually is tied to being unemployed or terminated. Uh, and that's when you can you know, apply for and receive regular EI benefits. And in order to receive regular EI benefits, John, you actually have to attest that you are able to work and ready to work. And so... When you are a disability claimant, making that attestation to the government that you're ready and able to work is actually contradictory somewhat to you saying to the disability insurer that I am disabled and not capable of working. So I always caution my clients to say, look, you want to make sure that you're at least being consistent with the disability insurer about where you're at from a health perspective. And yes, you should absolutely access every government benefit that you can while we are working through in trying to get a resolution for our clients for the disability claim, but you want to make sure that those attestations and the things that you are saying and being submitted on your behalf is consistent with the information that you've provided to the disability yes. insurer. The other component to this as well is that there should be an awareness by most people that if you access these types of government supports, it could be that your disability plan actually can contemplate taking credit for it. Yeah. What does that mean? There is always a section in the disability policy, John, that says we're going to pay you this LTD benefit or short-term benefits, either one. And the formula is this. It's usually two-thirds of what you were making. But if you receive these other sources of income, we're going to take credit for those other sources yep. of income against what it is that we are going to pay you. And sometimes EI sickness is one of those credits. I more often see it against short term than I do long term, but it's important for individuals to know that that credit may exist. Now, will I then say to people don't apply? No. If they're not receiving any income or support from the disability insurer, you know, and people need money to live, frankly, I'd much prefer to see my client pursuing EI sickness than being in a state of, you know, being destitute, frankly. Uh, and so I do think it's it's appropriate to do that, but just bearing in mind that it could then impact how much you're entitled to get for long term, and it may reduce that amount when we go to have that conversation with the disability insurer about getting a settlement. 
Let's move on to an email. I think we got some time for uh, Jamal. Jamal's the uh, Jamal's the one. Says my wife worked in the financial industry for nearly twenty years. In the last few years, she was subjected to harassment and discrimination in the workplace. This got so bad that she developed anxiety and eventually depression. We also have a special needs son to care for. My wife's doctor and psychiatrist put her off work nine months ago, but the insurance company has declined her even after we appealed. The insurance company is saying she can work elsewhere and does not qualify for disability benefits. Should we accept what the insurance company is saying at this point? What a difficult situation, Jamal. And look, my heart goes out to people who are in situations like this, John, where you know they're, they're trying to make it happen. They've got a special needs child there's issues in the workplace i mean it's just one thing after another and so look getting to the heart of his question is should we accept what the insurance company is saying absolutely not jamal absolutely not if the doctors are supporting that your wife can't work regardless of what was happening in the work setting i think does that does create a legitimate disability claim as i was saying throughout the show i mean the test for total disability is quite simple can you work as a result of your health or can you not work as a result of your health can you do the essential duties of your own occupation given what you're going through from a health perspective and if the answer to that is no and if that's being supported by jamal's wife's doctors then the insurance company should be paying the claim i think where they're getting the resistance is probably because it's stemming or triggered from what was happening at work insurance companies don't really want to get involved in crappy work situations john and they often get their backup when the claim arises from perhaps something that happened in the work setting. They will defer you back to HR to work that through with your employer. And that's their fallback position, particularly if it's a mental health reaction as a result of things that were happening in the work setting. And in my mind, that's simply not appropriate because she's probably been out of the work setting for a while now. I think he described number of months. And if mm-hmm. those health issues are still persisting, even though she's been outside of the work setting, then guess what? Full circle to what I was talking about at the top of the show, it then becomes a generalized condition, not a situational one. And when it's generalized, it supports that she's got a disability that needs to be compensated for because it's impacting her in other areas of her life, not just when she was at work, but also when she's been away from that situation. So I think this one screams out a legal claim. I don't like the idea of them continuing to appeal, particularly since they have other stressors in their life. She needs to focus on her health. They need to focus on their family and allow someone else to help advocate for them to get these disability benefits approved. And I'd be happy to help or any member of my team. We're just a phone call away. And with that, we are just about done. So thank you so much for your contributions to the show. You can always continue the conversation with Tamar and her team. Like I said, always ready to help out. It could be a simple question. It could be something more in-depth. Do not hesitate to call this number, 1-855-821-5900, 1-855-821-5900. And then finally, that email, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.